The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. I got a great guest today. Super producer Bob Rock returns to Talk is Jericho. He's telling some great stories about producing Metallica's Black Album. He's always got good ones. What it was like to work with him in the studio, from getting that classic snare sound on the drums with Lars to the suggestion he made to James about Enter Sandman. He talks about getting the guys to play together live in the studio and helping James to really sing in the studio as well. Bob also worked on the controversial St. Anger record. Has some great stories about those sessions too, about that. Uh, snare sound very uh a very judged snare sound and why his focus was completely different on this album than it was in the black album he's got a great story about what led zeppelin guitar player jimmy page had to say about saint anger bob's worked with so many great artists and bands including motley crew he was just in the studio again with them recently and discusses what it was like with new guitar player john five in the mix also a talk as jericho alumni great stories about recording with share Tales from Bon Jovi's recording sessions in Vancouver with Bob and Bruce Fairburn, the late, great Bruce Fairburn. And if you didn't already know, Bob worked with Canada's own Tragically Hip, did two records with him, and did a solo singer with the late, great Gord Downey. Uh, this is a combination of Bruce Springsteen and Eddie Vedder and Jim Morrison. He's one of Canada's biggest heroes. They worked on it for years. It was finally released just a couple weeks ago. It's called Luster Parfait, and it really is a great record. I can't wait until you hear Gord sing on this with Bob's music. Gord's wrote the lyrics, Bob wrote the music, and they have uh, a great chemistry here. Bob explains how they ended up doing the record together, why it took so long to put out after Gord's death, what it means to him and the hip family and the fans that is finally out. I'm super excited about it. So, so many great rock and roll stories with the legendary Bob Rock right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. And he's also from Winnipeg. All right, so uh, returning to Talk is Jericho, unbeknownst to Bob, is Bob Rock. Uh, from about probably eight years ago. And you might not remember this, but we're also fellow Winnipeggers. Yes, so I understand. And you are related to one of the girls that I went to high school with, Thorlene Oliver. Oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah. I think you're, she, she was at your wedding or you were at one of the weddings that she was at or something like that, yeah. Wow, small world. Yeah, exactly, small world. But uh, So where did you grow up in Winnipeg? I grew up in St. James. I went to Westwood Collegiate. I grew up in St. James, too. Where did you go? Well, I left. Um, I went to Golden Gate and then Bannatyne, and then we moved to the West Coast. <laughs> I was born at Grace Hospital in St. James, right? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's probably about 15 minutes from where I grew up, maybe 10 minutes. You could ride your bike there. Yeah. I used to work at a grocery store that was right beside that place. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, and here we are all these years later on Talk is Jericho to talk about many things, but just to jump right in, you want to talk about being from Winnipeg and talk about being Canadian, biggest and greatest rock and roll band in Canadian history that's not called Rush is, of course, the Tragically Hip featuring uh, the late, great Gord Downey, who is a Canadian icon. Yes. Much to my surprise, I found out about a week ago that there is a new Gord Downey solo record. Gord passed away in 2017. That's basically a Bob Rock, Gord Downey collaboration called Luster Parfait. And I've been listening to it all morning. It's fucking great, dude. Like, it really is so great. Like, where has this album been? And what? Ah, well, okay, I did two records uh, with the hip, uh, World Container, and we, we are the same. I guess at, at the end of doing the second album, Gore just asked, asked if I had any music. To start off, basically, um, I met Gord. He came to see me before World Container in Maui here. We went to this uh, small restaurant in Paia on the North Shore of Hawaii, and we talked about maybe working together, and then we talked about being Canadian being like fathers, growing up in Canada, and hockey. And so we became kind of instant friends. The, you know, and then I did the hip albums, and he says, do you have any music? Being in the Paolas, I've always kind of written tracks. I put together tracks, so to speak, like a whole song and record it, and then I'd hand it to Paul to write to, Paul Hyde of the Paolas, right? Mm -hmm. And so I had a whole pile left over, so I started sending him tracks. And he started sending them back written, and it just blew my mind. You know, the, I think it's the hardest thing to do to write to music that is actually there. But for whatever reason, it took us many, many years to complete because he was on tour and I was working. Unfortunately, it just finished just before he got sick. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was tough. Was it hard? I mean, obviously, Gord you know, being a, such a close friend of yours, because for people that don't know, we've had, we've talked about the tragedy hit before on, on talk is Jericho. Gord basically announced that he had terminal brain cancer and did a final tour of Canada with basically all of his fans knowing that this was, this was it for him. Gord is Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Michael Stipe, Eddie Vedder, you know, all rolled up into one. Everybody. Mick, Mick Jagger for in Canada. Everybody. He's, He's one of the biggest names of all time. So what was that like for you when Gord first told you that he was sick? How did you find out? I actually heard through his brother, Patrick, you know, because he was already hospitalized, etc. I went out to see him. Uh, me and my friend, uh, Jamie Koshu, helped me produce the album. We flew out and spent a couple of days with him. Just played music and just hung out. It was amazing. Played music like records, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Gord had just was putting on records and we just hung. It was great. And then when he got, he got really sick, I tried to mix this record and I kind of mixed it. He heard it. He basically told me, make sure everybody hears this. Mm. You know, I really couldn't listen to it for quite a while. And I guess year and a half ago, the hips new manager, Jake Gold says, We're, we kind of like to hear this. I think everybody wants to hear it in arts and crafts, the label in Canada. They wanted to release it. So actually, um, after a long period of time, I kind of looked at it from a different perspective, and I felt I could finish it. I basically looked at it, at it as what I do as a producer, a different perspective. And I realized that Gordon's lyrics were the most important thing. So I pushed him right out 
to the front mm. and um, I could finish it. It's really cool to listen to, like I said, because obviously Cord had done a lot of solo records in the past and he was very much into, you know, indigenous issues and that sort of thing. But this at his core is a rock and roll record. And it's really interesting to hear him singing riffs that aren't tragically hip written. You know, these are Bob Rock riffs. And that's why I think this really stands out to me because there's so many different styles of music on here. There's a couple tunes that have a real U2 vibe to it for me. Is there nowhere? I was like, dude, like this is like such a U2 yeah. type Bono landscape. And then something like, you know, Camaro or, or, or Lester Parfait, they're just great rock and roll songs. You put horns on there. I don't think I've ever heard horns before in a Gord Downey joint, shall we say. So it really does kind of run the landscape, the musical landscape. The thing is, is, you know, he, we didn't want to do the hip. And, you know, where I come from, basically it led to the fact that we could do whatever the f we wanted. You know, mm. so we just leaned on, you know, all the music is all my influence that I wear on sleep. There's Bowie. There's everything on it, right? Yeah. And he just reacted to it. So there was no history you know, in terms of what the music could be. Mm -hmm. So it was a whole pile of freedom. So he could wear all the different voices that he always wanted to do. He was inspired by the music. And I just can't believe it, to be quite honest, to this day. Because what he did was turned into some music that um, he just changed it all. As a matter of fact, the one song, Grey Boy, he was so good at it. The music was not as good as what he did. So I erased <laughs> it. I wrote, rewrote the whole song to his voice. That's where it ended up because he took it to a higher place, right? Is this something, did you do that after he passed away? Rewrite? Yes. The, the, yeah, wow. It's amazing. It's, it's almost kind of like what, what they had to do with the Beatles anthology where you're just taking the voice that, you know, that's already existing from a guy who's not around and writing music around it at that point. Yeah, well, just the melodies he did, the music didn't really, didn't really support the melodies. I kept the same feel, but... It's way better. Actually, someday the demo might come out and you'll see what the difference is. But mm. he took everything to a higher level. Let's put it that way. What did you think? I mean, as a lyricist, obviously one of the all-time greats. And just like I said, so the, the titles when you're reading through are always cool. But then you get something like, like for example, like The Moment is a Wild Place, which is, gosh, it's got to be about eight minutes long. Amazing lyrics. How is it for you when you're, you're sending Gord your music and he's sending you back these wordscapes of these you know classic gore downy lyrics were you kind of amazed at what he was coming up with oh yeah basically the first time i got definitely choked up music's important and what i do is important to me and when somebody gets inspired by it it's just the best feeling in the world and that good i mean literally there's no turkeys on this record there's no bad songs. <laughs> it's just a great record. Actually, I like the full version of the album. The, the full version of the album tells the story, you know. Well, no, but but like you're saying, because and usually we hear this with posthumous, you know, records. Prince has had them, and you know, so many different people have passed away with the, the materials left over. But this sounds like it, like like you guys wrote this over the last year. It's all very very great stuff. You mentioned it took you. Excuse me, a long time to want to listen to it again, get into it again. Was there any issues getting it released? Because it's been six years since since Gord passed. Yeah, the uh, I can't say too much about what I'm about to say, but <laughs> some other people were blocking it. They didn't want it to come out. Oh, but when they changed management, the hip and Gord's estate, 
then Jake Gould said, let's do this. Yeah, so it was held up by other issues. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, once again, I know Jake. I'm glad that he allowed it because it really is. You hear that you Hear that voice of Gord Downey, so distinctive. Nobody ever sang like he did. He's got that little kind of yodel in there, a little bit of a, his, his goatee style. Yeah. Just to hear that voice again, it just made me happy. You know, like it's, yeah. I'm glad it, is, it exists. Actually, there's a, the ending of Hell Breaks Loose, if you ever get to the end of it. All of a sudden, his voice soared, and that was one of the last vocals he did. And to me at the time, I was going, oh, I didn't know he could sing like that. If you listen to the end of it, you'll hear this Bono type. He just goes for it. <laughs> so I was going like, I was saying to him, oh, that's the next record. You're going to sing like that through the whole record. And we laughed. Anyway, <laughs> we had a lot of fun. This is the whole thing. Is This is built on friendship. And we're just like really, you know, like growing up in Winnipeg, him growing up in Kingston, etc. You know, like in Winnipeg, when I was younger, there's a song called In the Fields. And we talked about how I would go out at the beginning of the day, like nine o'clock, and I would just wander the prairies of St. James, you know, <laughs> all the because we lived on the edge of St. James. I'd be gone the full day. And my parents, you know, what was what was going on there? I never let any of my kids do that. <laughs> so we were talking about like exactly. kind of wandering, being, you know, just being aware of everything you know i saw all sorts of things old cars and it that was the beginning of kind of like i don't know just recognizing things so th that was a seed we talked about growing up and just being interested you know in everything the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What's Gord like as an artist for you? I mean, obviously you've worked with some of the all-time greats. What, what was different about Gord as far as his artistry? You know, in terms of... Um the material, obviously, Canada is a big subject for him. Hmm. He's one of the greats. I mean, he's obviously one of the greats in Canada. I'm lucky that I worked with, to me, the best two. My generation is Paul Hyde and Gord Downey. I mean, I'm a very blessed guy in terms of that. Hmm. Note I said my generation, not the other, all the icons from Canada, right? But yeah, I mean, he's a lot like Hetfield and Ian Asbury and all the guys that I've worked with where... You know, music and lyrics are their lives, you know, like the stacks of paper for each song. There's 30 rewrites on some of these songs hmm. to get it right. That's why it took so long. Do you think that's one of the reasons why the hip never really exploded anywhere else in the world? I mean, once again, if, if you're listening to this and you, and you haven't heard the Tragic Hip, they're a band that could play, you know, the Winnipeg Arena, the Calgary Saddle Dome, Toronto Sky Dome, multiple nights, super huge hundreds of thousands of fans, and then they go to First Avenue in Minneapolis and play in front of 700 people. What didn't translate with the hip that, that did with other bands of that genre and that era? I can't criticize. There's so many things that happen in, you know, in a band's career. But the best thing about the hip, working with them, is they're kind of like the Stones. They have a sound, which is very rare. Mm. They have this sound when they play together. Individually, you know, you, you can't hear one influence, but 
their their sound and the feel that they have. And Gord would just sing over top of it. I don't I don't know why. Maybe they just didn't go down to the states enough. A lot of people, you know, when you have success, there's other artists in Canada that have only been successful in Canada because you know they just tour Canada. Sure, it's a way to make a living. And when you go to the states, you you actually have to invest. So maybe that's the thing. I don't really know. I'm guessing, but even like with the Paolas, you know, we went to the states and we had moderate success. Yeah, I mean, we did really well up here. Right. Well, actually, I'm in Maui right now, but we did really well <laughs> in Canada, right? And it didn't translate. There were certain bands like that. If you talk about like Loverboy made it huge, Streetheart did not. And Streetheart, coming from Winnipeg, they were, to me, like one of the best Canadian bands. Yeah. But they just never were able, you know. It comes down to songs, radio, you know, the record company, touring, all that stuff. You know, a lot of success, especially has to do with management, as you know, management, record companies. Of course. I was lucky enough, like Loverboy, Brian Adams, you know, BTO. It's Bruce Allen. Bruce Allen manages me. Also managed a wrestler. Yes. Bret Hart. Yeah, Bret Hart. Bret the Hitman Hart. Yeah. <laughs> and we got to get to wrestling, by the way, in Winnipeg, because I was a fan when I was a kid. Well, let's talk about that. Was it AWA that you were watching? No, well, what is it? Was it um, All Star Wrestling in Winnipeg? Was it called? Yeah, it's weird because so so Gene Kaninsky. That'd be Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Killer Kowalski, Don Leo, Jonathan, Haystack Calhoun. I re remember that. <laughs> My dad and I used to watch it all the time. You know, growing up in Winnipeg. Well, Winnipeg's always been a huge wrestling town. Yeah, and a huge rock and roll town. We just had a show there at the at whatever it's called now, the MTS Center, about two months ago, and it was it was jam packed. So that's always kind of been in the lineage of the town. This pro wrestling. Yeah, when actually I was talking to Bruce the other day, and I was I was trying to remember everybody, and he's just an encyclopedia about wrestling. Yeah, and he told me that there was this great thing with uh, Minneapolis and the and Manitoba. There was this whole scene that happened, yeah. which is why we got those wrestlers to come up. It was called AWA, so that was it was based out of Minneapolis, and they one of the big stops on on the tour was Winnipeg, obviously being eight hours north. So that's kind of how I cut my teeth on wrestling as well was was with AWA. Yeah, <laughs> that's Winnipeg style. You mentioned earlier, Bob, about um, Gord's lyrics and and how guys like Hetfield and Ian Asbury were very much lyrical. How would you help those guys when you're producing them? Would you, would their lyrics go 100% from the printed page into the song? Did you help arrange, like, like, for example, with James's lyrics? Did you ever have to kind of help him edit? Well, you know, all of the guys that we're talking about here are our top shelf guys. Something that I've said before, the probably the uh, one thing I did with Hatfield was um, the original lyric was on Sandman was um, about crib death. Mm. And basically what I said is you might want to take another turn at this, <laughs> you know, because um, and I talked about great lyrics, lyricists like Bob Dylan, Bono. I said all these guys at uh, Leonard Cohen, they all update their lyrics. They don't just write it and they always look how it can be better. So I said, why don't you take another stab at it and maybe look at it in a different way and just try it. And he rewrote the lyrics. But that's the only thing I ever said to him. <laughs> and that took a lot of courage on my part. But um, it kind of worked out. In terms of Gord, the only thing that I had anything to do with the lyrics was when I sent him the music to Camaro, I said, Camaro, 
because um, my wife's favorite car is a 68 Camaro. And this movie called Aloha, Bobby and Rose about a car. Anyway, to make a long story short, I always thought Camaro would be a great name for a girl. So I said, that's what I called it. So he ended up writing a song about a girl named Camaro and he killed it. <laughs> I didn't expect him to do that. But he came back and he wrote the song about Camaro. It's an amazing song. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You know, here you are as, as Bob Rock once again, one of the legendary producers of all time. And it's still, I don't want to talk too much about it, but there's still a, a great story about when you basically were just becoming the Bob Rock and you had done Feel Good and then you connect with Metallica. How abrasive was that trying to connect with those guys? Because they didn't really want you there, uh, even though they might have wanted you there. But there was a lot of kind of butting of heads. How did you deal with that as kind of, you know, you're a young producer. You're not, you're, you're, you've are you done records, but you're still kind of like, hey, guys, like, what are we doing here? Well, a couple of things. I saw Metallica. I bought Justice and, you know, all the skaters around Vancouver, basically, in Surrey. They all had Metallica shirts on. So I bought Justice and I listened to it and I, I kind of went, hmm, I'm not sure about the sound. There's no bottom, whatever. Right. So um, the cult warmed up on the Justice tour, right? So actually, I saw the cult and hung with them and I stayed and watched Metallica. When I saw them, I heard this huge, monstrous, you know, heavy, weighty band. And I'm going like, what happened? Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is that because of Dr. Feelgood, they wanted me to mix the record, but I actually said, no, I didn't want to mix it. I said, I wanted to produce it. And I guess they thought, oh my God, this guy's got a lot of balls to say that. They came up to Vancouver. They played me the cassette tapes of their demos and I knew I could do it because the tempos and everything, I knew I could do it basically. You know, Sabatru, uh, they were all there, the tempos and stuff. Mm. And then we just started talking. We had dinner and started talking and they said, let's go. And the thing is, is that really what you see in the movies, et cetera, uh, the videos, et cetera, you know, there was a lot of great times, you know, there was a lot of connections, but it took a long time to break all those down, all those walls. Like, for instance, when James actually pretty much the way he recorded his vocals, he'd do one line, double it, move on to the next. You know what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I go like I go for performances. He basically said, you know, I've never really sung before and, and not, you know, nothing else matters. and What's the other one? Unforgiven. Unforgiven, yeah. The two songs, you know, I've never really sung. I said, well, I'll do multiple takes and I'll comp it. And I said, what vocal sound do you like? And he said, I really like Chris Isaac's Wicked Game. And I said, well, I'll get you that sound and then you won't have to double it. And therefore, you, you know, people are going to hear your voice in the emotion. And so we just worked on it. So I opened that door to him and, and he never went back. Mm. See, those are the things by making a whole pile of records, because I'm so fucking old, is that <laughs> I'd, I'd made a lot more records than them. So I just brought all the things I learned, you know, and just those doors opened. They had only known the records they had done with the other guys, 
that produced the records. You know what I mean? That's all they knew. Sure. They never played in the studio together, ever, until the Black Album. Never. There's a trust element, too. Like, even with my band, we had a song that just went gold called Judas. And when we originally started working with the producer, who also is a great lyricist, there's a little bit of adjustment. Like, I'm the singer of the band. I'm supposed to write the lyrics. And then you realize, who gives a shit who writes the lyrics? All that matters is the song. And you have to learn to trust each other when you're working with somebody like our guys, Johnny Andrews or Bob Rock or Bob Ezrin or whoever it may be, Mutt Lang. And once you get that trust, then you're like, okay, dude, like, what do you got? And obviously you had that with Metallica because you did six, seven records together, but it just takes a little time to get to that place. Trust is a big thing. And I had to earn it. To be quite honest, it was like they weren't Led Zeppelin to me. They were a heavy band and I knew about them. But it wasn't like I was in the room with Jimmy Page or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it was about making a record with them. And being around them and what I've learned by, I don't know, being around great people like Mick Ronson when he, he produced the Palos albums. Mm, wow. He taught me a lot about perspective and stuff. I just sat there and just, you know, it's a different perspective. A lot of people, maybe even yourself, you write a song and it's your perspective because you wrote it. But somebody that can come out maybe can see, well, this is great, but this could be better. And or you're not really doing enough of this type thing. Mm. That's an outside perspective. So slowly I, I built that trust. Well, let's talk about when they did the load record, obviously. So it's five years later. How do you follow up such a massive record like the Black Album? And there was a style change and there was a, a fashion change. What was kind of your thoughts when they came in with this new idea of where they wanted to go? Were you behind, not behind it, were you all for it? Did you understand they had to go somewhere different? Because it is a, a, a real different sound for them. We knew, you see, records like the Black Album, you can't recreate it. You really can't. We could go in the same building and it's not going to be the same. It's got a lot to do with the timing, where they are personally. I mean, I think the Black Album is probably James's most personal record. He wasn't in the same place. We cut like, I think it's 36 tracks. Took us like almost 10 months. Basically, we were going to make a a double record. And James had written maybe four lyrics. And I realized this this was going to take probably five years to do, right? (laughs) Right. So we decided to make two records. So we, and I knew that they had just, you know, started their lives, wives, kids. I knew that it was going to, I said, let's go to New York and just be alone. And that's how we finished the first half of Load. And it is a different sounding album. Like I said, it, you can't do the same thing. It's got the elements of yes, but that are the same, but they just move on. I mean, you can't go back. That would be like karaoke in a way. Right. All of a sudden, there was, do you know what I mean? All of a sudden, Leonard Skinner was a big thing. And some of their influences, when they discovered playing together, like Lode was the first time Kirk ever played rhythm guitar. He never played any rhythms before that. Wow. Never. It was always just James tripled. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time he played rhythm guitar. That's a change in the sound. They were just not changing. They didn't want to change. The same but different is a great phrase from Bowie. <laughs> it's the same, but different. It can't be the same. Well, you go back to what you mentioned about Bowie, like for example, I mean, everything about Bowie was always different, but they still had anchors and the foundation of who Bowie was as an artist. Exactly. And all the greatest artists are like that. Yes. 
I think one of the things that I got with working, those guys have so much integrity. I couldn't believe their commitment and their integrity to who they were. I got them at a perfect time. Mm-hmm. And I learned tons from them. But at the end of the album, I never wanted to see them again. Absolutely. We felt feeling was mutual. We were in New York after we mastered, and hey, it's been nice. Don't call. It was just like, <laughs> and I was serious. Randy Saab and I were just like, no way, never again. And unfortunately, it became huge. So what do you do? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Last Metallica question I have, because I, I have so many questions about some of the great artists you work with. Tell me about, and I loved about half or maybe three quarters of the St. Anger record. I think it's a great record. It's very raw. It's very dirty. It's very healing. Tell me about the mindset of the snare sound of this very tinny, metallic, maybe echoey snare sound. What was the the, the mindset of that? There was no mindset. What it was is that we went to Oakland and with the fan club and uh, we went to the the house in Oakland that they practiced with Cliff Burton. So when we got back to their studio, I asked uh, the drum tech to drag out the drum kit from that. And he dragged out the drum kit, this Thomas set, and it just sat there in the studio for probably (laughs) two months. And Lars started, when he started to play, he says, give me a snare drum. I just bought that snare drum at a local music store. And he put up the snare drum, for whatever reason, he says, let's let's just use this. And I put up four microphones, four, one on each kick, one on top of the, the kit, and on the snare. And he said, that's it. I was going like, what do you mean that's it? Yeah, this is the sound we're going to do. Because basically, and really, all I can say is that there was there's this great album by the Stooges, again, the Stooges called Raw Power. And if you think about it, St. Anger sounds like the band in that house. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There was no harmonies. There's no no fixing anything. It's just raw. No solos. Yeah. That was a rule that I didn't make, by the way, but I'm not going to say what happened <laughs> there. But the, basically what it was about is, like there was a, a band called the King Champs from San Francisco. All they did was put riffs together, right? So that was the basis of that. Also, James wasn't there for a long time. We had to punt. You know, we had to keep it going and moving. So that record wasn't the best for my career, but it was the best in terms of I had to be there for those guys because they broke up. Mm -hmm. I just put a couple of years and just concentrated on being a friend. And if that album didn't happen, I don't think they would have lasted. I agree. Do you know what I mean? That they had to do that album so they could just go back and be them. No, and that's the thing. Like every band you talk about, the greats have a journey of 30 or 40 years. And that was a raw band aid record. And people that don't understand that at the time, that was the best record for them to make and the record they had to make. And the, nothing could be changed about it. It's very personal. It is. The great stories, though. Two guys in the whole world Jack White, when it might get loud at the premiere, I happened to be in Toronto when it happened, mm-hmm. came up to me from the cross room and he says, by the way, I love St. Anger. It's an amazing album and left. <laughs> the other thing, Jimmy Page, not to drop names, but he's kind of a friend. Anyway, I was at the Sunset Marquee. He was sitting, eating breakfast on the other side of the pool. And somebody walked by and said, I'm here seeing Bob Rock. Jimmy said, no, Bob's here. He came over and talked to me, which blew my mind coming from Winnipeg. Yeah. <laughs> that Jimmy Page even knows my name, you know. <laughs> right. And he said, by the way, I love 
Saint Anger. It's a great album. Mm. So I'm okay. Those two guys bought the record. That's good enough. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Those two, I'm fine, right? The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I'm going through kind of your discography, and there's a couple of guys I want to bring up to you. Actually, my, my favorite David Lee Roth solo record is A Little Ain't Enough. What do you remember about making that record? How was it working with Diamond Dave? It was fantastic. Yeah. When he played me his songs, we were in a hotel room, a conference room in the hotel we were staying in. There was a ghetto blaster in the middle of the room, and I had a chair in front of me. I sat down, and he did his whole shtick and sang all of the, did all the moves and <laughs> sang all the songs. So I, I was in right from the word go. We had the best time. Talk about Jason Becker, because Jason Becker was the guitar player on that record, who was kind of the heir apparent, a great combination of Van Halen and Steve Vai, who then was basically diagnosed with MS during the recording of that yeah, record and, and never tough. never played guitar again. How did you track with him? Did he know, did you know something was wrong at that point? Absolutely. Yeah. He was suffering the whole time. It was tough. It was tough. Yeah. He's uh, one of the all-time greats that never got a chance to really show that, you know? Still still alive to this day. Yeah. Great guitar player. It was great working with Steve Hunter, too. He was uh, a big fan from all the stuff he did with Lou Reed and all the other stuff that he did. So when these guys would come to town, obviously, with, with, with in Vancouver, they always talked about going to hang out at the strip clubs and stuff. Would you just go home for the day, or would you ever go out with the guys? I tagged along sometimes. I mean, <laughs> this, this is the thing, you know, as you know, especially with the producer, in a way, you're just in a room with people and you got to kind of make friends right away, you know, and you got to hang with the guys so they're comfortable with you, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I did. It was fun. But, you know, a lot of times I had to leave because it got a little carried away. <laughs> bon Jovi broke down all the barriers. They were the first ones that discovered the strip clubs in Vancouver. And then everybody knew, of course. Yeah. That was just the place to go, right? It was, yeah. It was Little Mountain Studios. And it was um, Bruce Fairburn, who I worked with for many years. It just had a great sound. And it was a great city. It was affordable. And it's Vancouver. <laughs> it was fun. Was Bruce kind of your, your, your mentor, for lack of a better term? I'm not sure that's quite the best word. But the, the fact is, is um, I'd known him through the band Prism. Mm -hmm. I guess doing jingles, you know, jingles or commercials, they used to cut, we used to cut bands live. Everything was cut. There was no Pro Tools and stuff. And all the guys that were in connected with Prism, they were all session guys. So basically, I think through that connection, they heard all, all those guys were saying, you got to hear this guy from Little Mountain, this young guy. So he gave me a shot and I did Prism, the Armageddon Prism album. That was the first kind of record. He gave me a shot and then we just started working together. Mm. I learned a lot from him. He gave me my shot. Without Bruce, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here talking to you. There you go. That sums it up. That sums it up, right. He ended up, you know, because he wasn't a Sonics guy. So basically, I was a Sonics guy. 
And then the combination obviously works. So. What about um, working with Cher? Obviously, very legendary. Different different approach to vocals with her. Or how would how would you help produce her record when she's been doing this for thirty odd years or whatever it is? First of all, what a sweetheart, fantastic woman. I just did the vocals at Electric Lady in New York, and she, you know, just like everybody I record is do multiple tracks, comp it, go back and touch it up, and. She's a pro. She knew what she was doing. Richie and John had written the songs, so they were there. You know, it was really easy to do. I'll tell you one thing, though, that was hilarious. I got woken up to an early phone call from Cher. Hi, Bob, it's Cher. By the way, that effing, 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 whoever did blah, blah, effing, effing, will you fix it for me? And I said, yes, yes, I will, Cher. She swears like a trucker. Swears like a trucker. I love that kind of woman. Yeah, great, amazing. And I got a beautiful handwritten note from her. Yeah, great lady. What is your your approach to producing? You know, I, I've had Rick Rubin on, and I've had a couple other producers on, and obviously Rick is more of just a vibe and a feel. And for you, I mean, obviously we've seen a day in the life of Metallica and all that other stuff, but all these other bands, like, are you just a, a take guy? You want to hear the vocal? Are you helping craft the songs, arranging, all of the above, none of the above? One of the things that I learned, I mentioned Mick Ronson, I did a demo, Eyes of a Stranger. It's a demo. Mm. And Mick Ronson came into the room. He'd listened to all our songs. And he heard that song. And he says, well, we're not going to get better than this. That's actually a demo. He put the keyboards. We sang it. I did an edit. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what I learned by that is that you've got to recognize what's best in a band. It's not my record as a producer. A lot of people have a certain sound. Like Mud Lang has a certain sound. Mm. What I discovered is I just try and help the band make the record that they want to make. There's one interesting thing. I worked with this band maybe eight years ago and I was mixing it. They're called Cadillac 3. They were called uh, American Bang before. And I was mixing the single in my studio and I thought, I wonder if I've got any better. So I put on Working for the Weekend and compared it to the song that I just did. And it sounded exactly the same. (laughs) So... Either I didn't learn anything or basically <laughs> I have a perspective to music and people like my perspective, you know, where it ends up. That's how I hear music. Growing up in Winnipeg, growing up in Vancouver and Victoria and listening to the radio and being, you know, just all my influences, you know, comes out to my perspective. That's what I figure anyway. How about when you're working with, I mean, obviously you did some stuff with Michael Buble, who's huge, huge, huge. He's more of a crooner. Is there a different style to working with, with him than, uh, than working with a rock and roll singer? Not really. You know, um, what I learned is, uh, for one, there was a guy that was working with Michael and he had this song called Everything. And Bruce manages me and Michael Buble. He asked me to, he was playing in Maui, just go see him and listen to this song. And so we talked about the song and I said, well, you just got to fix this. The bridge isn't good enough. Rewrite the bridge, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Michael's going, this is the guy that did the black album. I don't get it. Well, the thing is, as I told you, I did jingles. I did AVs and jiggles with strings. I've done this my whole life. So it wasn't really like Bruce knew that. Michael didn't know that. But basically, when we cut everything, he went, oh, I get it. And then it was great. You know, we had a lot of fun. He, um, like all the records I did with him, other guys did some songs, but I, I always get the the kind of greasy ones, <laughs> which I like. Well, that's kind of your, your because what people don't realize is obviously all the r- great records you produced, but, but like you mentioned, you've engineered and mixed 
just as many. I mean, the list, your your discography of classic albums is is ridiculous, man. So you're kind of a jack of all trades. You can mix it, you can engineer it, you can produce it, whatever you need. Is there any records where you've done all three of those, or do you just try and balance it? Well, I think I did that with um, when I started really producing Kingdom Come, and I realized that I couldn't be a great producer if I was always like you can't wear those two things to me. Right. So that's why I found. Randy Staub, which helped me from then on. I had actually worked with Mike Fraser uh, for a while, and then he went on to do other things. But I found Randy Staub. I stopped backing off that. But I get my hands into it. I can't help myself. But <laughs> you can't do both. I don't think you can do both. Explain to, to people, because nowadays uh, you're comping tracks, you mentioned, which is basically you take, you know, you sing six versions and, and Bob decides which parts sound best. And you do it basically all by computer and you're cutting and pasting all on pro tools or whatever you're using. Tell us about how it used to be back in the day when you're talking about Randy Staub, how did you used to edit tracks together when they were all on tape? You see the thing, we did the same thing. People think that auto tune is when everybody started tuning. Well, we were tuning vocals, I'd say early eighties, mm-hmm. you know, all Michael Jackson, all the big records, Everything has been tuned for like decades before auto-tune came. It's just it took us a day to tune a vocal. <laughs> we put it into a machine, bring it up a half a cent, and put it back on tape. It just took a lot longer. The edits, we cut tape, and we printed. We were always trying to tune things. We were always trying to get the best performances. The thing is, is when I first, when I did the Loverboy albums, if Mike Reno, thank God, he was such a great vocalist, never hit a bad note, but if you you basically had one track for vocals, and to re-sing something, you were erasing the vocal that was there. Oh. Yeah, you, you didn't have a choice when it was 16 track and 24. So it just had to be good. Right. It had to be really good, you know? Yeah, a couple of times things went by the wayside. That didn't get better, but that that was part of the game back then. When you're talking about cutting, though, you'd actually have to take a razor blade and cut the tape. Yeah. And then cut the other tape, and then, like, scotch taped them together or whatever is that basically how it was well yeah it's basically well the black album yeah there's sometimes 175 edits we edit the drums up and back we put tape in to make them in time it was it was hell actually all the masters the tapes of all the drums the drum tracks we transferred to a, a 24 sony digital because we thought the tape was going to fall apart Unbelievable. Yeah, right. 175 edits would be so brittle at that point in time. Oh, yeah. No wonder it took 10 months to make a record back then. I mean. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's talk about um, another band that you've been synonymous with as far as making them into a huge band. I know you just recently worked with them this month even maybe is talking about Motley Crue uh, another band that you kind of took from one level all the way to the next with Dr. Feelgood what was the kind of relationship you had with those guys when they came in and what were they looking for from you 
uh, from Girls, Girls, Girls that you changed for Dr. Feelgood to make it such a giant record? Well, they were sober when I did Dr. Feelgood. I had a meeting with them. They were all sober. And they had burned a lot of bridges. They sent me a tape, and the first song on it was Dr. Feelgood. And my wife, Angie, just said, well, you're doing this record. <laughs> and then I met them. I was a fan. I liked, I liked, when I was younger, I liked the New York Dolls. I got what they were doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I listened to them. I thought they made good records. And Doc McGee, who managed Bon Jovi, managed um, Motley Crue. So he hooked, hooked us up, and they come up to Vancouver. Of course, they destroyed Vancouver. <laughs> but, we, you know, it was great to get them out of L.A. sober. And, you know, by the end of the record, they all went into rehab because they slipped. As you do. <laughs> yeah, as you do. Yeah, they're great. And it was actually the three songs that I just cut with them. It was so amazing. It was just the best time. So easy. Yeah, whenever you get a new member into the band, it always adds a lot more energy. And obviously, I know John Five. He's, he's a great guy. He's a great player. How was it having him in the studio and working with him uh, as the new guy? It was really easy. I got to tell you a story about Nikki Six. This is funny. So Dr. Feelgood, he says to me, he goes, I don't think I ever played on any of the Motley Crue records. I think somebody came in at night and replaced all my parts. He said, so I don't really know how to play bass. And I said, too bad you're playing bass on this. So I worked with him through Dr. Feelgood, did a lot of edits and made him play every note. But uh, when we did The Dirt, the songs on The Dirt, I went to see him and we started working on the demos. He picked up a bass and started playing. And I said, whoa, 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 what's going on here? He's been, he had been taking bass lessons for five years. All of a sudden, he's an amazing bass player. <laughs> and I think that's so cool. In that point of his career, he wanted to be better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I admire that. And so now, on the dirt, Nikki and Tommy played live off the floor, both of them. Okay? So I have John Five, Nikki Six, excellent bass player, Tommy Lee, it was easy. No, that is pretty cool. Yeah. It's like when you hear that Neil Peart worked with Freddie Roach, uh, the drum, famous jazz drummer when he was like 60 or whatever. You just, that's kind of like pretty damn cool to still be learning your craft when you're already a huge rock star, right? Yeah. Do you ever miss playing live? Do you ever do anything with the is at all? Pull out the guitar and throw down some riffs? Oh, uh, yeah. We constantly do that. I think we've got five new songs. In terms of playing live uh, in Maui, there's this charity that Shep Gordon, Alex Cooper's match. Oh, I was going to ask if you know Shep. I love Shep. He's great. Yeah. He puts together this. Um, everybody that lives here is Tyler, the Doobie Brothers. We all get together on New Year's Eve and do a thing for the uh, food bank and the Arts and Cultural Center here. Mm -hmm. And so the, all those guys let me play, which is amazing. <laughs> That's great. One gig a year. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but uh, Paul and I toured, the last thing we toured was with Fogarty, maybe mm -hmm. about 10 years ago. We did 10 dates with him, and it was great. Met him. Yeah, the funny story, last gig, he wanted to meet me, come back and meet his wife. So I go back there. Everybody says, the only guy that's gone back this tour was Paul McCartney, so they're all winding me up. Anyway, I go back. So first thing out of his mouth, how'd you get the kick drum sound on Dr. Feelgood? Oh, wow. And I'm going like, Oh, my God. John Fogarty's listening to Motley Crue. Anyway. How did you get that sound? Because, for example, Lars's snare is still the sampled snare to this day that bands use all the time. That snare sound is like 30 years ago, still one of the greatest snare crack sounds ever. That was a lot of work. 
Yeah, just finding it. I mean, do you just find the micro mics or do you set the drums up in different areas of the room or? We found the best area. And, you know, I would say that there's probably, like I'm a great believer, I don't really look at things like using too much or whatever. There's probably maybe five or six EQs on that snare. Hmm. Just finding it, just keep adding and doing. I don't take away things in terms of like EQ. I'm more like I add it because... When you take away things, you're taking away transients, blah, blah. That's very technical. Right. But, you, you know, you just work it to get it right. You know, that was the, uh, the thing with everything on the Black Album. You know, it took us a long time to get the drum sound. It took even a very long time to get the guitar sound right. But once you get it, it's it. And that's where a lot of respect came to. Mm-hmm. And Jason, basically, he was just playing the riff with the guitars. That's what his thing was. And I said, well, you know, you should play more with the drums, like as a bass player, counter rhythms and like a bass player. So we went, uh, we rented every bass, every amp and went through them all. And we ended up with a precision bass and an SVT. And that's the sound on the Black Album, basic. And he was playing bass there. He breaks away from the riff. He's more of a bass player there. Mm. That's what I brought, all the stuff that I've learned, you know. And that's amazing, too, because that bass sound is so good on the Black Album. Metallica was notorious for having great bass players. You could never hear them. Even Cliff Burton, you could hear him under the surface. And obviously, you mentioned Justice for All with no bass. Maybe that's the reason why, because he was just playing along with the riff, and those guitars were so crunchy. There's only so much real estate that he was getting lost. Yeah. There is a reason why there's no bass on Justice. James doesn't like compression on his guitars. The guys that mix them, I forget their names. I should remember because they're great. Basically, in an SSL console, there's this compressor. And back then, the sound was hitting that compressor really hard. It was part of the rock in the 80s, right? Right. Anyway, uh, James, when I started mixing, he says, I I don't want any compression on my guitars. And I'm going like, because basically on the Justice album, they kept turning down the bass because it was interfering with the bottom on the guitars. Right, right, right. So right. basically when they ended up, there was you couldn't hear the bass. And James, yeah, that sounds great. I sound great. Anyway, <laughs> so that I had the same problem. And I figured out a way through the console to separate the drums and get the drum sound with the compressor and everything else. And James, no compression. That's the sound of the Black Album. Hmm. That's why the guitars sound like that, too. That's just working around something that's wrong, right? Sure trying to figure out how to solve the problem, right? Uh, last few questions for you, Bob. Is there is there any bands that you, that you always wanted to work with that you didn't work with, that you still hope you can work with? Led Zeppelin's out of the... That's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody I love, but, you know, I'm fine. I'm happy with what I've done, and whatever lands comes my way, I, I just enjoy doing this. I really do. I just love making records. Well, it's funny, too, because you have bands like The Cult that won't make a record without you, which is great. Their, their, their stuff is always good. I mean, this is like Michael Bublé stuff is good. The crew stuff is always good. So you're still a working producer, probably taking as many or as few projects as you want at this point, right? At this point, I think COVID taught me to slow down. Mm-hmm. It was 15 months here on Maui, which was great. It was tough for a bit. And then I started to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But I learned I'm not ready to retire. But also I, I realized that, you know, it's time to kind of just take the things that I really want to do. Right now I'm working on... Oh, The Offspring. Oh, nice. Yeah, just finished that, finishing up that, The Crew. And then I'm going to be working with um, Willie Nelson's son, Lucas Nelson, in the new year. All fun stuff. 
Is there a, a record that you made that you thought should have been bigger or is one that pops to you that you really like that people might not know? That means I'd have to remember. <laughs> One record that I thought was would do better was the Tonic, the record that I made. It was a great record, mm. and it did okay. Got nominated for a Grammy, but it it never really did what it should have. I always thought the Choir Boys could have been bigger as well. That was a killer yes. record when it came out. Yeah, I think they might have got caught up in the grunge kind of shifting of the whole musical style, maybe. Yep. On Luster Parfait, just getting back to the new the new Gordani record, which what songs stand out for you? And obviously they're all your children, and it's hard to pick just one, but is on today, is there one or two that stand out as your favorites? I really like Grey Boy. Mm. That's the one that I rewrote. I love the moment, the long one. Yeah. Because I like kind of those long songs that move you. And I go I go through the album now because I know it so much. I kind of pick two or three and I play nonstop for about a month and then I pick another three. So it's really hard right now. <laughs> we'll just leave it at the moment in Grey Boy. Oh, uh, North Shore. Ah, that's a great one. That's a really great one. Great lyric. And um, yeah, I really like that. I can listen to that all the time because his vocal. All his vocals make it very listenable. Every time I listen to it, even though I recorded it all, I still am amazed what I pick up. The nuances that he has in his lyrics gets better and better with age. Do you feel like it's one of the best things you've ever worked worked on? Yeah, definitely. Wow. That's saying a lot. Yeah. Last question for you, Bob. You got a favorite Gord Downey memory? Something funny, something poignant, something that stands out to you? Yeah. He was uh, staying at this place in Paella Bay, and he met up with a centipede. And he's going, I think something just bit me, and my foot is swelling up. Am I going to die? And I said, no, it's, it's just going to hurt like <laughs> Like crap for about two days. There you go. That's all I got. <laughs> Gord getting bitten by a centipede. I have a memory of Gord. When I, I used to go to Red River Community College, Winnipeg's finest, yes. and I was working as a bouncer to make some extra money. It was about 19 years old or 18 years old. And they brought the Tragically Hip in when they were just a bar band. I remember the lady said, the the, the talent chick, she goes, these guys are going to be Canada's version of the Rolling Stones. And I went down to the dress room to help uh, organize the dress room. And they had some beer in there and Gord offered me a beer. So there you go. I got a beer from Gord Downey before he was famous. That's okay. You got to get him, uh, help him with his centipede bite. So that's not too bad. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Bob, it's been great talking to you, man. And once again, uh, one of the all-time greats. Much respect uh, for all the work you've done. And I'm excited to hear what you do in the future. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Say hello to Winnipeg for me. <laughs> well, Bob Rock says hello. Okay.